Welcome to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and it's my great pleasure today to introduce my guest, UCI professor and literary journalism director, Barry Siegel. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning feature writer, former national correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, and the author of seven books. His eighth book, Dreamers and Schemers, will be coming out at the end of this month. In a nutshell, Barry is the real deal as a writer. I spoke with a recent graduate of the UCI writing program, Caitlin Antonios, and she spoke in glowing terms of Barry as a generous mentor, amazing storyteller, and incredible champion for literary journalism. She said Barry's goal as a writer is to create a picture with a deeper truth. Caitlin is now in the graduate writing program at Columbia University in New York City and says that nobody in her Columbia writing program had an undergraduate teacher the caliber of Barry Siegel. Welcome, Barry. How are you today? I'm just fine. Nice to be with you, Kevin. Fantastic. Barry, my goal today is to talk to you about four points. Your career as a journalist, two, literary journalism, three, your new book, Dreamers and Schemers, and four, uh, UCI Center for Storytelling event, which will be coming up. So let's just start at the top. Please, can you give us a short breakdown of you've had an amazing career as a journalist? Did you always know that you wanted to be a journalist? How did that evolve for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was always, I loved to read, first of all. And that probably, if you want to be a writer, you got to be a reader. And I remember going to the library every two weeks when I was still in elementary school and getting a pile of books. By the time I was in high school, I was very much committed to already being some kind of a journalist or writer. I confess that my first goal was to be a sports journalist covering the Los Angeles Dodgers. That was an exciting time back then. Uh, and I evolved, though, and went to, I enrolled at Pomona College at the Claremont Colleges and got very involved with the student newspaper there and eventually became the editor of the paper. And during the summers, I would get internships at uh, newspapers around the country, the Portland Oregonian one summer, the Washington Post another summer. And then I enrolled at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, where my student Caitlin Antonios is now. So <laughs> came full circle. And then I started a, got soon, soon after Columbia, I got hired at the LA Times, where I spent many years roaming around the country as a national correspondent, uh, looking for stories to tell. Wow. In your younger years, was there a particular book or author that, you know, really grabbed you? It's like, I want to be like that. Yeah, well, yeah, particularly what the kind of uh, assignment, the kind of articles I wanted to write. I saw a lot of them in The New Yorker, and particularly Calvin Trillin uh, at The New Yorker used to write a series of articles under the banner U.S. Journal, in which he would just go somewhere to a, a town somewhere in the country where something had happened. Often it was a murder trial, but it didn't have to be that, but often it was. Something had happened where that would allow him to tell a story at the same time, a story that would provide a window onto a way of life or slice of the country, which is, of course, what his real subject was. He would do this, that U.S. Journal piece would appear every third week, usually. I had many, many other models, but you asked me, and the, the Calvin Trillin's U.S. Journal was the foundation for what, when I arrived at the L.A. Times, what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. How about in terms of early victories in your career? Anything memorable that you remember? It's like, you know, when you wrote, you know, you really, really felt good about a particular article or a particular piece. Anything that really, for you in your mind, clarified, you know, I... 
I really have grown here. I've accomplished something. Well, you start getting positive feedback, and that and that that helps, and in two ways. Uh, in those early days, we didn't have the internet, so but the, the articles would go out, and you would start getting actual real snail mail letters and phone calls, and you, I, I would start to realize that I was affecting readers, that you were moving them, that you were intriguing them, that you were telling stories that mattered to them, and that they were caring, uh, and. Boy, that's a uh, that's quite a, a an impetus to to, to keep at it. Uh, and then my editors kept supporting this kind of work, and it was unusual because it wasn't normal, conventional newspaper journalism. I wasn't covering the news of the day. I was trying much more to write nonfiction short stories, to go somewhere and tell a tale, and they were supporting that, which was unusual. But at the L.A. Times. It be, the LA Times then, under the editor, editor Bill Thomas, became quite known as a, as a writer's paper, supporting writers. So I was getting positive feedback from readers and editors, and that sure encourages you. Hmm. And that seems like a unique beat. Was there something about your writing that allowed you to be a national correspondent or to go on these more feature in-depth pieces? So actually, it was just a little nerve on my part, I, uh, a little chutzpah, I would say. Uh, uh, I was I was hired. Yeah, I was 26 when I was hired, and I was working in the feature section, but I was a little restless. And what I w- wanted was a Calvin Trill and U.S. Journal beat. I wanted the New Yorker, the, the literary journalism beat. So I wrote a long memo to the editor-in-chief, which was, I say, it takes a little nerve. There was about 1,200 editorial employees at the LA Times at the time, and I was still in my 20s, but I mapped out this idea I had. I didn't use the word literary journalism. I didn't say New Yorker. I didn't say Calvin Trullin. But I was describing that kind of assignment. No relation to the current news, breaking news, no, no geographical limitations, just going somewhere where something was happening that yeah. where I could tell a story. I thought Bill Thomas would boot me out of his office when I uh, delivered the memo to him, and instead he said, okay, wow, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> yeah, wow, wow. Do you have a favorite story in particular or anything that comes to mind as... Well, you know, my uh, so many. I, yeah. I've written. I, I, I guess the one that jumps out right now is the one that led to my first book. I I went to a little town, White Bear Lake, Minnesota, where there had been a very a difficult story about a little boy who had died at the abuse of an adoptive mother. And this, there was a trial twenty two years later just, uh, that that determined that she had uh, killed this boy. Talking about a case, this was such a. A classic. You can tell a story about that, but in doing so, you are uh, it provides a window onto a community. How did this happen? The responsibility of everybody in the community when the boy was killed. No, no there was no cause of death listed. It gave me a way to. Uh, it gave me a way to uh, pull back the curtains on a, mm-hmm. on a community, good community, on mm-hmm. a way of life. So. I wrote a, it was a major two-part series, uh, and that got enormous response and eventually led to my first book, A Death in White Bear Lake. Is that in California someplace? or and That's in Minnesota. Oh, okay. that's, that's outside of, uh, White Bear Lake is outside of St. Paul. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, going to the far spectrum of looking at a community, I know you did do an article on Waldron Island, yes. which is a place that 
where people, for our listeners, this is a place that didn't want to talk to anybody. They didn't want any strangers. It's interesting. Did you have a, a yin-yang pull about you that, listen, these people don't want me here? Well, that's actually, that's, that's one of the stories I've never forgotten <laughs> on, on Walter Island. In fact, I use that story. I don't make my students read much of my own work. That doesn't seem fair, but I actually ask them, and the, I teach an ethics class, ethics of literary journalism course every winter quarter, and I ask them to read the story because it has... It it, it 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 puts in play a lot of ethical questions. And this is a small island up in the San Juan Islands of Washington, northern, what, northwestern United States. Exactly, is. off the coast of the state of Washington, just below Canada, San Juan Islands. I happen to love it up there, and I really yeah. knew about this to begin with because my family, we would go up there every, every August and spend a week on Orcas Island, which is one of the islands. Well, sitting on the beach at Orcas, on our little cabin at Orcas Island, look across the water at Waldron Island. Well, Waldron Island was populated by maybe 200 people, totally shut off from the world. No power, no utilities, no water, no power, no phone lines, no boats, no no commercial boats going there. And I just was fascinated about the last 200 people still living off the grid. They had been raided by federal agents for uh, uh, raising some of them were growing marijuana. So their world had intruded on them. And I thought if I could get on the island, it'd be fascinating just to explore these last 200 people still living off the grid. And I managed to do so. I made, made some contact with somebody who lived there. And would, you had to get somebody, a private boat to take you over. But I was greatly conflicted in that story because the island did turn on me eventually as I was uh, reporting the story. They started to see me as an evasion equivalent to the feds who, who had evaded them. And I had to wrestle with ethical issues about what I was doing and uh, how I was affecting them. And the one way I resolved that is I decided to write the story in first person, which I don't, I rarely do. Mm-hmm. Made my, I had to make myself a character in the story because they had made me a character in the story. They had started to have rallies against me, and my story eventually became a meditation on on that, on on my intrusion in the on the island, and uh, that's where I teach it to my ethics class. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because obviously uh, I actually recently went up to the Seattle area, uh, Bainbridge Island, and want to go back. I, you know, I've always heard so much about it, and. Now I know about this place called Waldron Island, which sounds really interesting, and of course I wouldn't know about it. You can get pretty close to it, but you would have to get somebody in a private boat. Bainbridge is closer to Seattle. The San Juans are a little further out out there in the the Puget Sound, but I encourage you to visit San Juan Islands. Excellent. In case you're joining us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and I'm interviewing Pulitzer Prize-winning author Barry Siegel, who teaches writing here at UCI and is the literary journalism director on campus. Barry, can you please tell us about literary journalism? I'm I'm fascinated by this genre. Well, I, I like to say it's just really good nonfiction writing of all kinds of uh, all sorts. People are always asking me about this term. What we do, what, how we look at it is, uh, you know, this is nonfiction narrative writing, telling stories, in, in, uh, either short stories or a nonfiction novel, uh, using 
all the aims and techniques of the finest fiction. We're, we're, we're storytellers. We believe in the power of storytelling, the art of storytelling. But the only difference between what we do and, the, and a fiction writer is that we can't make it up. We have to be reporters before we are literary writers. We go out in the field, uh, we report stories, we talk to people, interview people, uh, and 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 pr- pr- go through the documents. But we're also, but we're doing a little bit something more than, again, conventional mainstream journalism. We have in mind always the idea that we are going to tell stories. We're we're narrative writers, so we are reporting for timeline. We're reporting for character point of view, and we come back and very much try to write that nonfiction short story or that nonfiction novel. Mm-hmm. Anything that we as listeners, just and myself included, that has been part of the popular culture that I might recognize. I mean, of course, there's the classic In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And it seems like uh, screenwriting and television writing lend themselves to this this type of uh, writing. But I don't know, anything that comes to mind that people might be cued by yeah well a lot of them uh, I, 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 I mean or some very very early literary journalists you know Stephen Crane uh, uh, George Orwell uh, Jack London they were writing a form of literary journalism a turn into the 20th century but of course it was in the 1960s with the emergence of the new journalism that this field became uh, re- really solidified and you've just mentioned Ka- Truman Capote's In Cold Blood that was one of the, the major models uh, Tom Wall electric Kool-Aid acid test, the right stuff, uh, Hunter Thompson, so many things, including Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Gay Talese, uh, great, great model, uh, 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 John McPhee at the New Yorker, Joseph Mitchell at the New Yorker. These were, we all, I went to town on them. These were my teachers. Uh, uh, Joan Didion. When I started reading writers like Joan Didion and Truman Capote, that's what made me want to be a literary journalist. That's that, I said, I want to do that. In previously talking to you, I know Gay Talese, you recommended a book to me. I think it was called... Uh, I think I recommended The Gay Talese Reader, which is a collection of his classic magazine pieces. I recommend that to all your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We'll just transition into your new book. Now, have all your books been considered literary journalism, or are they slash nonfiction, or... Does it work like well, that? Well, this will be my eighth book, and five of them fall into the field of literary journalism or narrative nonfiction writing. Three of them are novels, fiction novels, uh, courtroom legal dramas. So I've done, I've done both. As a lot of literary, if you look at the lineup of great literary journalists, a lot of them have crossed back and forth on the line between nonfiction and fiction, just like that. Tom Wolfe has written novels. Capote has written both nonfiction and novels. It's, it's, we're right there. We're sort of like straddling the line. Mm-hmm. Well, please, can you please give us a brief synopsis of Dreamers and Schemers, your new book coming out? Sure. Um, it may be best to first just say the, 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 the beginning of it. I always was just fascinated by early Los Angeles and the, and the emergence of Los Angeles very quickly from a cow town with, the, with the, uh, citizens walking around with mud on their boots to giant metropolis. And it, a lot of this happened in the, the transformation when L.A. became L.A. It was in the early part of the 20th century, uh, particularly in the 1920s. 
I just started off wanting to write about that. I wanted to go into that world. Uh, but to tell a story, you need a, a narrative track. You need a story that moves you through that world. And after a lot of research, I fixed on the idea of tracing, chronicling the bidding for and staging of the 1932 Olympics. That process began in about 1918 when L.A. was truly a cow town. Talk about chutzpah and nerve. The, the leaders, the city leaders who had made the decision to try to bid for the Olympic Games were doing something unimaginable. The, Los Angeles was maybe the 10th largest city in the United States, and all the Olympics had been, had been held in the great capitals of Europe. So I had in mind this, the idea of following these, these early leaders in L.A., not just as they were bidding for and staging the Olympics, that would be part of the story, but also just as they were imagining and creating the city, uh, a city that did not exist when they first arrived in Southern California. Mm -hmm. It was a wild, wild open time, full of achievers, but also full of scandal, murders, uh, cheats, and it's fun. Dreamers and schemers. Mm. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a rich area, and, that, and that's the story I'm telling, is the emergence of Los Angeles at the, at, at, at the time that they were bidding for the Olympics. When you started to formalize the book, at what point does Billy Garland is, a cent, is the central figure in the book, and he seems to be the driver uh, of get, bringing the Olympics here, and, and everyone followed him. And, and of course, he had other uh, strong associates next to him. But you know, at what point did that crystallize? For was it apparent from the start? Or you know, uh, no, I love that. That's a perfect question because this is it goes to the heart. The answer goes to the heart of archival research. This this book was the first one that I did that was entirely based on archival research. No one's alive to interview basically. I didn't even know William A. Garland, Billy Garland existed. Uh, I never heard of him when I began this book project. As I say, the first thing I did was just say, I want to write about this era in L.A., early Los Angeles. And only after a quite a lot of research did I then start to fix on the idea of using the bidding and staging of the Olympics. Still didn't know about Billy Garland, uh, which is really unusual because he was an extraordinarily prominent figure in early L.A., but he's just got faded in, 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 in history. So I was months into the, pro, into the research of this story, and before I was roaming around in the archives and on the Internet looking for some details about how we bid for the Olympics, only then did I first stumble upon William May Garland, the Prince of Realtors in Los Angeles. And wow, obviously in increments. Even then I thought, well, that's interesting. And he was going to be a character. And he, he, as I researched, his central role became ever more apparent, not just in the staging and bidding for the Olympics, but in the growth of Los Angeles. He was everywhere. So I discovered him well into the research, did not know at the start that he would be the main character. As you're doing your, your research, Barry, was there anybody around who, when you brought up Billy's name, recognized him? Or it's like, oh, were there any acquaintances in you know, future generations or any, or any companies? Well, you know, first of all, he's he's not that people don't remember him now. But uh, yeah, Deverell, Bill Deverell, William Deverell, he's a historian, a Los Angeles historian, and I was consulting him at one point, and 
he mentioned his name, but he doesn't. Billy Garland does not really appear in the pages of the of the of the iconic histories of Los Angeles. Where I found him mentioned more was places on the internet. Uh, I found him all over in the newspapers headlines because he was such a prominent figure back then. Also, there's a there's a great library resource here in LA called the LA eighty four Foundation. It's the, it's the best, uh, probably the greatest sports library. It, it offers, among other things, the the greatest sports library in the in the world, I think. And there, I certainly found a lot of mention of Billy Garland, including a big file of his correspondence, his letters with other people. Interesting. Are there any companies that, you know, have transcended from his time or it's like, no, that's all kind of in the fog of history? He was a commercial real estate. Real, he ran up the, the the prominent, the number one commercial real estate company uh, real in, in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, but it doesn't exist now. Mm. Gotcha. How about in terms of your research, any big surprises that you had no idea about? Of course, Billy, but... But Billy, well, and I, it just, it, it was fun to see the the allies that he started to, the friends and allies that he started to gather around him before they were prominent, before they were famous, before they were successful. Uh, for instance... Billy arrived in L.A. when he was 24 years old, down and out, uh, was living in a boarding house, paying $9 a week to, and, and just trying to f- figure out a, a living. He had come from New England, bad lungs, and was seeking a Mediterranean. Another person who did exactly the same thing around the same time was Harry Chandler, the, who became the owner and publisher of the Los Angeles Times, who also came from the uh, Northeast lung problems and also uh, was down and out and living in a boarding house. They found each other. N- neither of them had a, you know, had, a, had a penny in their pocket, but they started together to imagine a city that did not yet exist. And... Harry Chandler became one of Billy's key allies in all of this, in building Los Angeles, in bidding for and staging the Olympics. Of course, let's keep in mind that both of them were also very active in real estate. They bought a lot of real estate, so they had a, a, a they were civic-minded, but they also had a great personal motivation in mm-hmm. building uh, mm-hmm. Los Angeles because obviously that would increase property values. I'm amazed. At the end of your book, you do a uh, list by chapter the, the a lot of the research uh, sources that you used. Were there any nuggets that you were dying to put in the book that just didn't make the cut? Huh. So that's this is a very interesting. I mean, well, probably uh, in this kind of archival research, there's always these kind of things that you're that you're looking for. But I will tell you one. Yes, and there was a nugget. One of the things I write about occurred in 1924. It was the last uh, uh, bubonic plague outbreak in this country, and it occurred in Los Angeles in 1924 at a time when, I promise you, the civic leaders didn't want the nation and the world to know that there was plague. Uh, in fact, it was pneumonic plague, uh, not bubonic, which is even worse. And so they were trying to, uh, I won't use the word cover up, but they were trying to to resolve the resolve it before anybody found out about it. And there was a big meeting in, in uh, the mayor's office with the shadow government, everybody involved, uh, all the civic leaders, the Chamber of Commerce, the government leaders, everybody in there was in a strategy meeting. And I know the meeting existed. And uh, I know 
could I know from the records some of the people who were there and to my mind it was inevitable that Billy Garland would have been at that meeting but at no point could I find a clear documentation and I went all over studying the minutes of meetings I went into archives and more at several different libraries USC the Huntington looking for that nugget mm, if mm. you find it please send it along <laughs> As a researcher, how do you know when you have enough? No, I don't think that you, uh, at least I don't. I mean, I always, I tell my students that 95% of your research isn't going to make it directly into your story, but it will inform the story. So you keep on researching, not necessarily because everything is, is going into the story or not. It's because you need to understand the world that you're going to write about. I could have kept on going forever trying to understand, under, understand the world. You're always operating with that, what don't I know? Uh, what else is out there? Um, but I will say, the I guess for most of us as writers, there's two way, ways to determine that you've done it. One is if you, if the research starts to repeat itself and you start turning up the same things that you already know. Uh, but probably the biggest reason that you know that it's done is because your deadline is looming. <laughs> the, de- the looming deadline tells you, I'm done. <laughs> I, I see that writing is the same as radio. <laughs> And now I see your book is actually published by uh, University of California Press. Is that something that you've done before? D- d- does it mean anything? I I just noticed it. No, actually, it does mean something, and I'm happy to talk about this because this is I I have grown ever more concerned about book publishing world and and what a lot of us writers see is a certain uh, caution. Uh, a business model for book publishing has kind of uh, imploded in the way that journalism world has too and i think that what we what i see is that it gets ever more difficult to to propose a book to to the established trade but book publishers uh, they're not certain what will sell to be honest and are they they it has to be a hit there it has to be major or it has to be a comp it has to be a comp to something that already was a, so I got a little, you know, I shared this idea with a number of the New York-based trade publishers because all my other books were published by them. I have never been published by University Press before. And I think partially because it was Los Angeles and these Olympic Games were in New York and this was early New York. I probably, I think I might have gotten a little more interest. (laughs) They weren't weren't saying no, but they were seeking revisions and we, we were, there was a lot of foot dragging and it suddenly, it occurred to me finally that you know, University of California Press is a high-reputation publishing house that has a specialty uh, a division in publishing uh, books about California history. And I just thought, well, this is a logical fit. So instead of instead of uh, banging my head against a, a wall there, why don't, why don't I go see and see what that's like, uh, uh, a new experience. And um, so I brought it to them, and they were very enthusiastic. And, and I'm happy I did. It was a pleasure working with them. How long was this book in the making? Well, that's a that's a my answer will be a little misleading because I started the project, the idea for the project in about 2009 and was working on it from 2009 to 2010, more developing a proposal, more doing the initial research. But then I put it aside because another book project came up, uh, Manifest Injustice, about following a death row case or, or a murder case in Arizona. I had been, you know, 
foot dragging with the publishers over dreamers and schemers and rather than keep doing that uh we we had another book project that the publishers in new york were very interested in so i put this aside for you know maybe four or five years and worked on on manifest injustice instead but when that book was done this one Los, early Los Angeles was still resonating in my mind. It had never gone away. It was uh, it was the story I wanted to tell. So I opened the box again, opened that box that I packed up, and went to work on it. And then that when I resumed the work, I'd say I probably worked for about uh, three years to three years on on this. But that was from a starting point of of some foundational work mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. before. And when you say three years, is that? 40 hours a week? Is it? Does it go up and down? Is it 20 hours a week? No. Well, what is that like? Oh, no, it's totally erratic. Remember, I'm, I'm a professor here. I'm, uh, I teach during the school year. My uh, students get the not just my time, but just my psychic energy and the focus is quite a bit. I teach writing workshops here, and it's their writing that matters the most to me. And I'm also the director of the literary journalism program, which involves a few meetings here and there. So the, the certainly I'm working during the school year, but it certainly is not 40 hours a week. I, mm. I, I'm grabbing time uh, uh, as I can uh, during the weeks, during the months, during the school year. And then, of course, uh, you go off in the summer breaks and, and the winter breaks, and, you, and then I I can go full tilt uh, on on the book project. It's funny though, and I would I, I tell my students this: when you're not working on it directly, sitting there that is actually working on it, you still are. Because mm. once it's alive, once it's going on, once you've put something on the page, it's it's in your mind, and whether you're thinking directly about it or not, it's in your brain cells. Got you. Okay. Are there any particular challenges to research? Is it is it always just literally finding where the re, you know. F- Finding what yeah. you want to discover, what you know, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. Well, I, I, Kevin, I think you identified it. That is, <laughs> the, the, the challenge is, is that you're not necessarily going out. Uh, sometimes there's a specific chunk of information that you want. I want to know something about the 1500 meter race at the 930 level. Okay, well, you know, you can there. There's the thing. Dot 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 dot. But so much of it is that you don't know what it is that's out there that is the challenge but it also what makes it so much fun because you you're you're sort of mucking around and oh then you stumble upon one thing you open a door and oh my god there's something there and then you look across that room and there's another door you open that door and one of the real thrill it's just a blast really doing that kind of archival research because exactly because you don't know where you're going uh you're just of feeling your way, almost in a dark room, but you keep finding things and the story keeps opening up to you further and further. So definitely a challenge, difficult challenge, but also exciting and and, uh, a blast. Excellent. The big discovery that I took away from the book was just how in the 1920s, 1932, first of all, the depression, you don't really think about, you know, that era and how Los Angeles really was dusty and not a whole lot here i mean it it was compared to european capitals i mean even compared to the east coast i mean how they pulled that off it was probably 
just because people didn't know what was in Los Angeles, so whatever smoke they blew. <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly, and there's two, I, th- I think there's two answers, two 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 parallel kind of forces going on. One of them is the is the incredible charm and skill of Billy Garland. Um, I mean, Billy Garland set sail to uh, he wasn't even known. He showed up at the uh, International Olympic Committee a- annual meeting in 1920 first trying to bid for the for the games and was turned down he showed up again in rome in 1923 and stood up in front of this august body and talked about southern california and los angeles and won them over now the other the second card though the second piece of that is you say yes dusty town yes undeveloped known however hollywood existed. Movies had started being made in really in 1907, 1908. By the 19, early 1920s, movies were uh, the, a blinking wild uh, attraction around the world. And somebody came up to Billy at that IOC meeting, in fact, and said, Are, is L.A. anywhere near Hollywood? And, and Billy said, yes, yes, L.A. is a suburb of, of Hollywood. The movie stars were famous. The movies were uh, being played all over the world. And a lot of it, I think, Billy's Charm, and Hollywood. Uh, Again, just a a short break. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and I'm with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Barry Siegel, and we're just finishing up talking about his new book, Dreamers and Schemers, which comes out this uh, month. He's also the director of the literary journalism area of the UCI English Department. Are there any locations still from the uh, from those years, from the Olympics, I, I, the the Memorial Coliseum, of course, uh, the Doheny, uh, what's it called, the Greystone Mansion, yeah. I believe, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, which I've always kind of vaguely heard about, but didn't really know much about it. And, and yeah. you have a so well. First of all, the by easily the biggest lasting uh, edifice, the le- the legacy is the Coliseum, and people sort of think the Coliseum was built because we got the Olympic, we won the bid. And in fact, Billy and his gang built the uh, the Coliseum in order to win the bid. Uh, we hadn't gotten the bid. This was betting you know, betting on the come. Uh, again, nerve. Uh, the Coliseum was built like in 1920, 20, completed in 1923, just as Billy was uh, standing in front of the IOC trying to uh, uh, win, win the bid so that he could put those blueprints down, put the photos down and say, look, we have this Coliseum. Uh, and of course, it became one of the, uh, and I should say he did that he and his and his allies did that in defiance of the uh, voting public, which had voted down a bond issue to finance construction of the Coliseum. So what Billy and his friends did was round up private financing from the bankers of, of Southern California. They leased the land from the city and county, uh, financed the building of the Coliseum themselves, then leased the Coliseum back to the city and county for 10 years. And city and county would, in a sense, pay back the million dollars it cost in uh, it cost them to build it. And then they would hand the Coliseum over. So act of will by, by private citizens after the public had voted it down. That's, a, that's one great legacy. You talk about the Greystone Mansion. Well, it's hard. You got to read the uh, E.L. Doheny, the great oil, uh, rich oil man, was also one of 
uh, Billy's, he was his neighbor down the street in the West Adams d- district. And uh, 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 another major figure in Los Angeles at that time. Uh, very, very one of the great, one of the great uh, murders mur- in, in all of LA lore was the murder suicide in the Greystone man- mansion of uh, Doheny's son Ned and his personal secretary. Uh, this happened, oh, just in the years just before the, the Olympics uh, affected the city and affected uh, uh, Billy greatly. Um, I devote a passage to that just because. It's part of what was happening while they were trying to present to the world this image of Los Angeles. Scandals and murders and, 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 and uh, suicides and everything. These bubonic plague, things kept on happening in L.A. at a time when they were trying so hard to <laughs> present this beatific picture of Los Angeles. So they were running around uh, trying, to, try, trying to polish uh, a, a, an image that wouldn't stay polished. Well, before we run out of time, Professor, can you please tell us about UCI's Center for Storytelling? And I guess that's a center, and is there an event coming up? Yeah, well, first of all, let me, I, I, I really want to clarify, uh, there's a nice story in the current UCI magazine about this proposed center, and we've, we've also had some other attention paid to it. I want to emphasize that the, this is this is a center that we're hoping to have that is that we we have planned and proposed and uh, but it exists right now as a as a dream of the LJ faculty. It's a center where we we want to honor the art of storytelling, the importance of storytelling, of of telling stories that matter. And our idea is to create a center where. Oh, well, let's put it this way. We teach LJ majors, our, our majors, how to tell stories all the time. There's a lot of other people who have stories to tell. Citizens around in the community, scientists, uh, public health officials, a lot of stories to tell. We want to expand our reach to help mentor and, and help people tell stories that matter. Ultimately, telling stories helps us to understand ourselves and connect with others, form memories, and make sense of our world. So we want to create a center that will support efforts of storytelling people all over, uh, not just across the campus, but in in the community too. And we want to start with a storytelling lab. We need donor support for this. The School of Humanities sure likes your idea, but for this to happen, we... We need to get support from the community, so it's a it's a dream right now. Gotcha. Now, is there an event coming up? Yes, mm. on October twenty uh, sixth, which is a Saturday, we're we're doing something a little unusual. We're offering a, a an event uh, Saturday afternoon, one to four p.m. here at the School of Humanities for uh, inviting members of the community to experience for that one afternoon what our students in our program experience all the time in our workshops and our classes. We will, all the, the entire LJ faculty will be there. We will offer uh, a presentation in, for the first half about storytelling, basically about how we tell stories, how we were drawn to literary journalism, and how they can be, how they can tell stories, tools and uh, the craft. And we will then break up into, into some workshop sessions uh, for the second half so they can decide, you know, do you want to, tell, to report telling stories about other people, drawing from memory, personal essay. Uh, 
The idea is to give is to introduce our program to people in the community. Yes, people who might come to want to support us, and also introduce them to the techniques and tools that they might use to tell their own stories. So one to four, October 26th, it's, we've been promoting it, uh, publicizing it all over, and we invite everybody in the community to come join us that day, like a one-day university with, uh, with the, the LJ faculty. And how can people find out more information if they want to? Can they go on Google? Yeah, well, we've been sending it all over the place. I would. Oh, Patricia, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to say, if you will email Patricia Pearson, Pearson, P-I-E-R-S-O-N, Pearson, P, at U-C-I dot E-D-U. She'll send you the links. Excellent. Professor, you know, I know the Dream Project is on your plate. What else is, you know, do you have an idea for a new book? Is there anything that you're uh, also working on right now? Well, we're, uh, I have ideas for about six new books, but I don't, I'm not sure, you know, I think we'd probably be premature because ideas, these are just folders of pieces of paper in it. I've just come back, the school year has just started for us. This is, I'm sitting here in our third week, and what I'm, what's most on my mind right now is our program, how to build it, how to enrich it, you know, in a lot of different ways for our students. The thing I most want to do right now, I mentioned a little bit, we are the center would be comprised of a, n- a number of components, but the one component that we want to start as soon as we can is the storytelling lab. This would be a very interesting place. We hope to get space, we had, which is very hard to get at the university. A couple of rooms where we'd have desks, rooms where people can come. We work on projects, uh, and, then a, and, a, and then a studio where they can do um, oral histories, podcasts, uh, under our uh, mentorship, uh, this would be open not just to our majors, but to people across the uh, the campus and in the community. Probably that that storytelling lab stands out to me right now as uh, a preeminent goal uh, project. Uh, in addition to just making our program ever more useful and interesting to our majors. Fantastic. Our time has run out, Professor. Thank you very much for being with us today. A pleasure.